And O oh Lord, as we now prepare our hearts to come to your word, once again, Lord, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. We know that your word accomplishes your work. And we recognize, Lord, that each of us requires much work. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that you would use your word to work on us, to grow us in Christ's likeness, to teach us, to mold us, to rebuke us, to strengthen us. We remember once again, O oh Lord, that you know our needs. And your word is infallible, your word is inerrant, your word is inspired, and your word is sufficient. So we ask, O oh Lord, use your word to teach us, to nourish us, to grow us in Christ's likeness. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're not quite going to finish up the chapter today, but we're going to come close. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17, verses 41 to 54. First uh, Samuel chapter 17, verses 41 to 54. As we continue in our study of First Samuel in one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Um, next week, of course, we will be uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that should be a, a great message. Uh, but this week we are in First Samuel, um, chapter 17, verses 41 to 54. And like I said, this is one of the most well-known passages in all the Bible. This is the passage in which David goes to battle against Goliath. And most people, I think if you, if you went to the, the Alderwood Mall, you know, the biggest mall around here, if you went there and asked people if they've heard of the story of David and Goliath, uh, they would probably say yes. They've probably uh, had some familiarity with it to some extent. As I've noted, you know, in previous sermons, it's, it's still a reference that you'll hear used all the time, uh, maybe used too much in sports when you're talking about teams that maybe aren't matched up all that well. Uh, but most people don't understand what the story of David and Goliath is ultimately about. And with, with a little bit of apprehension, I say that I worry that maybe even most Christians aren't even sure exactly what the story of David and Goliath is really about. Because if you were to ask most people, even Christians, but Christians and non-Christians alike, they'd most likely say that you know it's a, it's a story about uh, how God enables an underdog. Right? Or a non-Christian, they'd say, you know, it's a heartwarming story of an underdog prevailing against all odds. And we love stories like that, right? Everybody loves stories of underdogs that overcome uh, despite the odds. But as we come to the encounter of David and Goliath on the battlefield today, I want to make sure that we understand that this is not a story about someone simply overcoming seemingly uh, insurmountable odds. That is not at all what this story is about. In one sermon I, I started listening to on this passage, uh, the pastor started by saying that uh, this, this story gives us three, uh, three principles for Christian living, trusting in God's power, using God's weapons, and believing in God for the victory. 
And just to be clear, I don't think that he was entirely mistaken, but I also think that he missed the primary point of the story. Because while sure, there are principles for us to live by in this passage, just as there are in every passage of Scripture, the passage simply isn't about us. It's not how to be a better you. That's not the point of this story. As one preacher in recent years famously and, and rightly uh, said of this story, you aren't David. You're not David. Yes, David models some good virtues like courage, right? He, he models courage and uh, bravery and faith. And of, of course, he, he models all these things very well. But this story isn't a, a story to teach us how to be like David primarily. That's just not the main thrust of this story. Instead, it's a reminder that A, you are not like David, and that B, that David is a foreshadow that is a, a type of Christ. Uh, he, he, he reflects the coming Messiah and what the Messiah would do. The victory that Israel experiences in this passage, I may as well get the spoiler out of the way, right? We all know that David wins, right? Everybody already knows that. So the victory that Israel experiences in this passage comes as a result of a single representative who goes to war against satanic forces on behalf of his people. And it's in this sense that David serves as a foreshadow of Christ who came and defeated our enemy, Jesus not only defeated the enemy of our souls, Satan, but he also defeated the enemy that we refer to as death. Now, why is death an enemy? What is it exactly that makes death just so awful? Why is it referred to in Scripture as an enemy? Well, it's seen as an enemy because death is actually not the end of a person's existence. Rather, death marks the point in which a person is ushered out of this life and is ushered before the presence of God to be judged. The Scriptures teach very clearly, Hebrews 9.27, that it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. The terrible thing about that is that the Lord is a perfect judge. He is a just and righteous judge who must punish all sin. And for the person whose sin lays squarely on their own shoulders, death marks the beginning of an eternity of conscious torment in hell. Now we just celebrated Christmas this past week, and the beautiful message of the Christmas story is that God did not leave us with no choice but to carry our own sin on our own shoulders. Rather, He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and to take away our sin. And by taking away our sin, the sting of death is defeated. It's removed. The sting of death is removed because as Romans 8.1 says so beautifully, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't need to fear death because we don't need to fear the judgment that comes immediately after death. So death for the Christian is a defeated enemy because we stand before God with no sin on our shoulders because Jesus took our sin upon Himself and paid the debt for that sin. 
But for the person who does not repent and does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, death is a terrible, terrible enemy. One to be greatly feared. Indeed, it's an enemy that will one day catch up to every single person. We needed a hero. We needed a Savior who could save us from this enemy. And that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ and no other. It is Christ alone. And so as we come to the story of David and Goliath on the battlefield, we should see this battle as a foreshadowing of what Jesus did on our behalf. On behalf of all who believe in Him. And if we see it that way, then we can join with Paul in joyfully declaring as he does in 1 Corinthians 15.57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that David went to the battlefield in obedience to his father, Jesse, who had instructed him to go out onto the battlefield with provisions, first for his brothers, but also for uh, the officers of, uh, of the army on the battlefield. And upon arriving, David had heard the taunts and the mockery being spewed forth by Goliath of Gath as he mocked the Israelites. And not only mocked the Israelites, but more significant than that, he mocked the God of the Israelites. After hearing Goliath's taunts, David said in verse 26, if you've got your Bibles open, he said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? In David's mind, this was the craziest thing in the world for a person to do. Well, this... this uh, whatever David said here, what David said here, it got back to King Saul. Uh, it, it offended his older brother, right? It offended David's oldest brother. Uh, and it offended apparently quite a few people because it gets back to King Saul who summoned David to appear before him, which we read about in uh, verses 31 to 40. Uh, and upon appearing before Saul, he, uh, David announced the good news that neither King Saul nor any man in all of Israel needed to fear because David, who was still too young to be enlisted in the military, was going to be the one to go out and fight this giant who was filling the men of Israel with such great fear. And David announced that the Lord would give him victory over his enemy, that the Lord would be faithful to deliver him. Upon getting King Saul's permission to go to battle against Goliath of Gath, uh, David discarded the armor that Saul had tried to get him to wear, and he picked up five river stones. And with these stones in his pouch and his sling in his hand, David returned to the Valley of Elah to confront this uncircumcised giant. And by the way, when we talk about this sling that David has, it's not like a little slingshot, like you know, Dennis the Menace had this little slingshot that he always had in his back pocket. It's not like that. This is something much more fearsome, uh, which we'll see as we get into it. But this is all that David went out onto the battlefield with. His sling, his pouch with some rocks in the pouch. But the point of this passage if we understand how it connects with the New Testament and how it's a foreshadowing of Christ, the point of this passage is that Jesus' victory over death happened ultimately so that God would be glorified, so that all of God's people would grow in their faith in the Lord, and so that the nations would cease from their rejection and defiance of the Lord. Now there's been a really big buildup to this battle 
as you've probably noticed, we're in our third sermon in chapter 17. There's been this huge buildup to this point, but the scene of the battle itself is actually incredibly brief. Uh, more significant than the battle itself, perhaps, is uh, the dialogue, the, the words that get exchanged between David and Goliath between, uh, out on the battlefield before the battle begins. So we start by looking at Goliath's response to David stepping out onto the battlefield with no armor on to speak of. We read this in verses 41 to 44. It says, Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. Then the Philistine looked and saw David. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Now as we picture this scene in our minds, and that's why we're given stories, that's one of the reasons we're given stories, is because we like to be visual learners, we like to imagine things. And so as you're imagining this scene, as you're picturing this scene in your mind, remember that the Philistine army was on one side of this valley while the armies of Israel were on the other side of the valley. And for 40 days, Goliath of Gath had come out two times every single day to mock Israel and Israel's God, only for nothing to happen. Only for nobody, not a single man in all of Israel's army to step forward. Not King Saul, not anybody stepped forward. But finally, after 40 days, this has been going on for 40 days, a young boy steps out onto the battlefield from among the armies and he's glaring at Goliath. He's ready to accept Goliath's challenge. We're told that Goliath moved forward with the uh, with the shield bearer, the man who was given the responsibility of carrying his shield. The way I picture it is he's moving forward because perhaps, just maybe, this is just the way I imagine it, maybe from his angle, he thought that he was actually seeing a small boy step out and accept this challenge. And so he moved closer to get a better look because it certainly couldn't have been that there was a small boy stepping out onto the battlefield like it appeared, could it? And of course, it was. So we see Goliath moving forward toward David, this massive giant who wore over 150 pounds of armor. Uh, we can imagine the weapons that he, that he had, that he carried, just glistening in the heat of the midday sun, only for him to kind of momentarily relax and pull back as he realized that he really was looking at just a small young man who wasn't even wearing any armor who had come out for battle. And so he pulls back, not out of fear of David, but kind of out of surprise and out of disgust, as if to say, surely this has to be a joke. Uh, who, who's punking me here? Who's, who's pranking me here? Where's the camera? You know? And he was filled, we're told, with contempt. He disdained him, it says. Why? Because this little, handsome, ruddy young man didn't look like he deserved to be taken seriously at all. And the reason Goliath would have thought that David didn't look like a threat was because he was seeing, as man sees, 
he was not seeing as God sees. And you'll remember that that was an important point made in the previous chapter when Samuel uh, thought that Eliab surely had to be the man and God had to correct him, saying, hey, you're looking at Eliab the way man looks at him, not the way I look at him, not the way God sees. But everything we have to understand, everything is on the line for Israel here as David steps forward. Remember, the deal was, and there, there was a deal that was proposed by Goliath. The deal was that if a man from Israel could defeat Goliath, then the Philistines would uh, become servants to the Israelites. But if Goliath were to win, then the Israelites would become servants of the Philistines. So everything was on the line here. It was just the height of insults in Goliath's mind for Israel to therefore send out this young, unscarred, inexperienced, unarmored boy to face him. Goliath is thinking that if Israel had taken him seriously, if Israel had taken Goliath seriously, they would have sent forth their, their fiercest warrior, their most experienced warrior. But this boy, who stood before him, he was small. He looked weak. He looked immature. And he was certainly inexperienced. After all, what kind of a warrior steps out onto the battlefield with no armor, with nothing? Goliath would have interpreted the message of David stepping out onto the battlefield to be something like, uh, you know, we think that you and the Philistines that you represent are all a complete joke. That's the way he interprets David stepping forward. But the fact that he's insulted and feels like the Israelites are just making a joke of him, making a mockery of him, is clearly seen in verse 43, where Goliath asks, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the author adds, And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. That is, by Goliath's gods. That's very interesting. Who are Goliath's gods? Well, it would be the Philistines' gods. Who are the Philistines' gods? I'd say we, we probably don't know all of them by name, but we do know one of them that we learned about back in chapter 5, uh, and that is their god Dagon. Uh, more on him shortly. But for now, suffice to say that this cursing of David by the names of the Philistine gods uh, shows us the reality of this showdown. It tells us what this was really all about. It's not just the Philistines versus the Israelites. No, it is the gods of the Philistines versus Yahweh, the living God of Israel. And so Goliath utters one more threat in verse 44. He says, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Given that we already know what the outcome of this battle is. Uh, maybe this is just a good illustration of Proverbs 16, 18, which says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Because Goliath is filled with confidence, is filled with, with pride. He, he knows what he is capable of doing, and he doesn't think that this is going to be any problem. But pride goes before destruction. David not only doesn't back down from these threats, but he responds with some of, in my opinion, some of the best and some of the most memorable lines in all of the entire Bible. Let's continue and look at what David says in verses 45 to 47. 
It says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands." Wow, I don't think there's a movie out there that has more intense uh, threats than that. More intense, more just confident, uh, not confident in self, but in the Lord. More confident uh, words to speak against an adversary. But the first thing that David does is he points out the inadequacy of Goliath's weapons. You catch that? He's got the best. Goliath's got the best weapons that were available at the time. He has a sword. He has a spear. He has a javelin. And these aren't just regular sized, you know, ordinary weapons. These are probably the best weapons. And they're heavy because Goliath is huge. But these things, these weapons that Goliath has, there's one thing that they all have in common, and that, uh, that is that they are inanimate objects, just like Goliath's false gods. Just like Goliath's false gods, his, his weapons don't hear anything. His weapons don't say anything. David, on the other hand, by contrast, comes in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. This is a God who not only hears, but who speaks and who acts. When David says that he comes in uh, the name of Israel's God, what he means is that he has come to do God's will. That, that's what that means when he comes in his name. He's there not for his purposes. He's there not for his glory. He's not even there for Israel's glory. He is there for God's purposes and God's glory. And thus we see that the second thing that David does here is he establishes the charge or the accusation against Goliath. He has mocked and taunted not only the armies of Israel, but he has committed the grievous sin of mocking and defying the Lord of hosts, the Lord of uh, the armies of Israel. What sin is that? That is the sin that we know as blasphemy. Now here's kind of a neat side note for us. And I, and I do think that this is something that the author of 1 Samuel uh, would expect that we as the readers here would, would come to this text knowing. So let's make sure that we, that we know it. And the, the, the thing that we should know is this. What is the penalty under Israelite law for blasphemy? It's death. But how is that death to happen? Leviticus 24.16 tells us. It says this, it says, The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death by stoning. It's 
It's one of those details that would be really easy for us to miss, but it's obviously a very significant detail for this story. But David is out there proclaiming that the sentence that has been rendered against Goliath of Gath and which will be executed by David is perfectly in line with God's holy will. Perfectly in line with His Word. The third thing that David does here is he voices just supreme confidence. But his confidence is not in himself. It's not in what he's capable of doing. It's not in his youth. It's not in his speed. It's not in his wisdom. No, he has supreme confidence in the Lord to deliver him from the hands of his enemy. He says, This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands. The weapons that Goliath brought into battle were no match for Yahweh. As gigantic as Goliath was, and as strong as he was, and as enormous as his wingspan undoubtedly was, even his arms were too short to box with God. So we should note that part of bearing God's name, as David does here, he comes in the name of the Lord, involves invoking God's promise to protect all who trust in Him. Richard Phillips writes this in his commentary. He notes that, quote, we grasp David's idea when we consider the ironic blessing that the priests regularly invoked over Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And Phillips continues noting that, quote, when God first gave this blessing, He said, so shall, uh, so shall they put My name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. And Phillips concludes, quote, to bear God's name, therefore, is to live under His blessing, which includes His promise to keep His people from their foes, end quote. And so David is not only certain that God will be faithful to do this, that God will grant him victory. But David tells Goliath exactly what he's going to do after he wins this battle. He would decapitate the dead giant with a sword. Now wait a minute. What's this about a sword? David doesn't have a sword. So what sword are we talking about here? Well, Goliath is the only one between them who happens to have a sword. That's the sword that David will use. And he says that not only is Goliath going to lose this battle, but the thing that Goliath had threatened against David, that he would feed his flesh to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. David says the birds and the the beasts are going to get an even bigger meal because they're not just going to have one person, they're going to have the whole Philistine army to feast on. Now there's a sense in which David does serve as an example here for us in the sense that his trust is entirely in the Lord and not in himself, not in his skill, not in his ability, nothing about himself. He just has confidence in the Lord. Paul says this of the way that Christians are to live their lives. And it lines up with with the thing that David is illustrating here for us. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. He says that we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's the significant part. 
that we put no confidence in the flesh. David, in this instance, serves as a good illustration of that principle. Paul, thinking about Paul, Paul was very educated. He was, he was wise. He was a man who was able to say that you know, he, he had checked off all the boxes. He had done this. He had done that. All the things that were required for a man to be a very distinguished Pharisee, Paul checked all the boxes and then some. Nevertheless, after listing out all the credentials that he once upon a time had as a Pharisee, he didn't regret surrendering them for the sake of gaining Christ. He goes on to say in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, but whatever things were gained to me, talking about all his credentials, all the things that in the flesh he could say about himself, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See, there's a very real sense in which Paul had once upon a time been what you might refer to as a spiritual Goliath of sorts. He had gladly, however, laid down whatever skills, whatever abilities he had in the flesh for the sake of gaining Christ. He goes on to say in verse 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul, once upon a time, had all of his confidence in the flesh. But at this point, he says that was just... Ridiculous. It was foolish. Those things that I, that I trusted in, those things that I once could say about myself, they were all garbage. They were rubbish. They were worthless. Because Christ is worth more than all those things combined. And then some. All the things that made Paul able in the flesh, he surrendered all confidence in trusting instead in the name of the Lord for not only the knowledge of Christ and the salvation uh, that's received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but receiving His righteousness, receiving Christ's righteousness. In Christ alone, my hope is found. That's, that's the song we sing, right? He's my light, my strength, my song. As I was thinking about it, those lyrics are really a, a denouncing of everything about the flesh and, and, and placing our trust instead of in, in our strength and the things that people in the world hope in and hope for, placing our trust entirely in Christ instead. See, David had all of the benefits that we do of knowing how the Lord had repeatedly been faithful to His people throughout history. That's one of the purposes of these stories and studying the Old Testament is we see this long, long story of how faithful God has always been. He had always delivered His people when they trusted in Him. And we can look back on, on Old Testament stories and we can see that, but David, he knew the stories of the Exodus as well. When he knew the, the stories of how when the Israelites had, uh, had failed to trust rightly in God, uh, as we saw earlier in 1 Samuel, for example, God would make them fall into the hands of their enemies, but only as a means of disciplining them so that they would return to the Lord uh, so that He could faithfully deliver them. But I want to make sure that we don't miss what this was all about in 
David's mind and in the mind of the author of the text. And the point is expressed at the end of verse 46 and in verse 47. David was coming out to do battle. He was coming out to do all these things that he said that he was going to do in order, quote, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly, speaking about the Israelites, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. That's why David was out there. It was all about the glory of God. The reason that David would be granted victory is the same reason that the Israelites were successfully delivered, uh, delivered from slavery in Egypt. It's so that the Israelites and ultimately all of the peoples and all of the nations of the world would know that the Lord is God. So this was a call to the Israelites as well as to the Philistines and, and even to Goliath to repent of trusting in things that are less than God. And the truth of the matter is, everything is less than God. So what are you, what are you trusting in? What is your ultimate hope in? What is your ultimate trust in? What is your ultimate confidence in? If it's not God alone, it's in something far less than God. But how interesting to see that there's even an evangelistic aspect in David's mind to this battle. But the good news here, and the foreshadowing of Christ in this scene, is seen in the fact that God's anointed king, who came in the name of the Lord against the enemies of God's people, would win salvation, would win freedom from bondage and fear, and would win deliverance for them as their sole representative. And the purpose of this battle was nothing less than the glory of God and the power of His salvation being demonstrated clearly before the unbelieving peoples. And there were unbelievers on both sides, weren't there? But the mistake that Goliath was making here was the same mistake that the Israelites were making. Isn't that interesting? They were putting their confidence in things that were less than God. God could have given them all the best weapons. That could have been the way that God delivered them from Goliath, right? He could have just given them all the best weapons. He could have done what He did in delivering Israel before. uh, Giving them victory in battle through the use of, of weapons out on the battlefield over their enemies. But God didn't want his people to trust in the greatest of weapons. He wanted them to see that he was the greatest of saviors. He wanted them to see that he alone was the greatest of saviors and to trust entirely in him. So let's be sure that we understand that that's also what Calvary's cross was all about as well. Let's be sure that we understand the absolute foolishness, indeed the futility of imitating all the things of the world and putting our trust in the weapons of the world. The world puts their trust in lesser things, things that can neither hear nor speak to them, nor can can they act. And we even see people in the church imitating and using the world's means. Sometimes that means 
sugarcoating the gospel because you don't want to offend anyone. Sometimes it means entertaining people because you want them to stay and you want them to enjoy it. Entertaining people instead of leading them in biblical worship. But sometimes it involves, it can involve all kinds of things. Sometimes it involves even God's people using profanity and justifying it by saying, oh, they're only speaking the way that the prophets used to speak. Listen, there's a whole group of people in the Reformed Christian community who think that this is a valid argument, who think that they can use profanity because that's how the prophets spoke. Listen, there is no evidence that the prophets ever, ever, ever used profanity. And even if they had, who is our prophet, priest, and king who serves as our ultimate example? It's the Lord Jesus, and he's never quoted as using profanity. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets, and John the Baptist is never quoted as using profanity. And the Scriptures do explicitly instruct us about the kind of language that we use. Ephesians 4.29 being just one example. says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So let's not make the same mistake that the Israelites made looking essentially no different from the unbelieving world around them and trusting in the unbelieving world's ways, methods, and devices. I love that God used David in this moment to remind the Israelites and and to remind us of the foolishness of trusting in or of imitating anything or anyone less than God Himself. We should not look, think, or speak the way that the world does. Let's resolve, therefore, to live our lives in light of the fact that what matters is not that we have the best weapons or the best methodologies or even the best results. All that ultimately matters is whether or not you serve the true living God in a way that involves trusting supremely in Him and walking in a manner that is pleasing to Him. See, our lives should be about the same thing that this battle in 1 Samuel 17 is all about. Our lives should be lived in a way in which God is glorified so that all of God's people would be strengthened in their faith and their trust in the Lord and so that the nations, the unbelieving people around us would cease from their rejection and defiance of the Lord. That is a cause worth living for. But let this be more than just a New Year's resolution for you. Let this be a life resolution. The battle that takes place, it's really over before it even begins, as we well know. Let's look at verses 48 to 54. It says, Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. 
When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'arim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. Now it's really kind of funny in a way. It's, it's amazing, isn't it, that uh, it took us 47 verses of building up to reach the actual battle, but the battle itself lasts all of two verses, and it's giving us all the details that are involved in this battle. But before two verses are even over, Goliath is dead, face down in the dirt. In fact, we might even say that Goliath is put, if you remember chapter 5, that Goliath is put into the same posture that Yahweh put Goliath's god Dagon into back in chapter 5. And you'll remember that Dagon's head was also removed. A little bit of foreshadowing there. Like when Dagon fell face down in the presence of the ark of Yahweh, there was nothing usual, nothing normal or ordinary about this victory. All David had used was a sling and one river stone. Now, we do need to understand that this, like I said, it's not just your, your modern slingshot that shoots a projectile, I don't know, anywhere from 30 to probably 50 miles an hour. No, a shepherd's sling was very different. You can find videos of it uh, on the internet uh, of how these slings work, where they, they whirl it around and maybe even the, the shepherd you know, kind of spins around to get some extra momentum. But those things go up to 150 miles an hour. So a shepherd's sling would hurl a, a, a stone incredibly, incredibly fast. And given that the stone would be, what, I don't know, five times, ten times harder and heavier than a baseball, you do have a deadly projectile here. This is a deadly weapon. But obviously, Goliath had never seen anybody use this on a battlefield before. It wasn't ordinary uh, battle gear, you might say. But this wasn't... Uh, so this wasn't common in, in ancient warfare. Goliath clearly wasn't prepared for it. Uh, in fact, the author wants to make sure that we understand that when David defeated Goliath of Gath, he did so without even using a sword. You'll see there that he, he even specifically says that. I mean, was this just a lucky shot or what? Was, was David just lucky? The answer, we know, of course not. Of course not. Goliath was stoned to death for blaspheming God's name, just as Leviticus instructs. Just as we had seen in chapter 2, verse 9, when Hannah sang, He keeps the feet of His godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. How did Goliath think that he was going to prevail? By might. But that's not how it works in God's kingdom. Do you believe in that principle enough to live by it in your own life? That not by might shall a man prevail? Do you believe in that enough to apply it, even if it means persecution? You know, if you read of Christians in difficult places, North Korea, or China, or Iran, or Saudi Arabia, uh, 
and you hear about how they get thrown into prison or labor camps for practicing their faith, it's really tempting for us in the Western world to think, boy, they've, they've got it really, really bad. Uh, but I've heard stories, and maybe you've heard these stories too, about uh, Chinese pastors or North Korean pastors who have asked visiting missionaries uh, from the West not to pray for their safety because they feel like we're the ones who actually have it so bad because we've got so much comfort in this world. We even have Christians out there who hate the idea that this world is not our home. You post that on social media and you're going to get some pushback. Wow. Who, who would have thought? But the, the truth is that Christians in persecuted regions of the world have learned to rejoice in their tribulations, just like James instructs, knowing that things like imprisonment, knowing that things like beatings, knowing that things like house arrest have a way of not only forcing them to put their trust in the Lord alone and to be weaned from every worldly comfort but that these things that we consider to be so terrible also have a way of letting even their persecutors see God's glory demonstrated in the depths of their own suffering. So we think they've got it bad. But maybe they know something that we don't know. Maybe we've got it bad. Maybe we enjoy being comfortable a little bit too much. The deal in this case that we talked about was that the Philistines would be enslaved to the Israelites if the great and mighty Goliath were defeated, which seemed impossible. And yet, as Goliath is defeated, the, the Philistines are just shocked. And they, they, just, they, they run for it, and the Israelite army chases after them. But you'll notice that David doesn't. He doesn't chase after them. Instead, David takes the head of Goliath, and he brings it back to Jerusalem. And he took Goliath's weapons back to his tent. Now it's worth noting that at this point in history, Jerusalem was not really possessed and controlled by the Israelites. It wasn't in their hands at this point. Uh, the Jebusites had settled in and really taken control of Jerusalem. But by bringing Goliath's head to the city, David was actually sending a clear message to the Jebusites. That message being that God had gathered his people back to himself once again and that they would be coming to take Jerusalem back. The message of this story is not how to be the best you. Not how to be like David in such and such a way. That's not the primary message of this story. No, the primary message of this story is that the king who comes in the name of the Lord will prevail against the enemies of his people on their behalf. Of course, that is what David did, but that's also what Jesus, the true and better David, did in a more ultimate sense. When we understand the way that this story foreshadows the work that Christ did on our behalf, we understand that when we take all the, the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament alike, and we tie them together properly, the primary lesson of this story is that God has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to free us from sin, the sting of death, and the devil. That's the primary message of this story. 
The arrogant taunting of Goliath, by the way. It's really no different from what we see today, is it? Do we see prideful taunting of Christians and of God in our day and age? Everywhere. It's everywhere. Nothing's different. The world still hates God. The world still mocks God. And because the world hates and mocks God, they they hated and and they mocked Jesus. They continue to hate and mock Jesus. And because they hate Jesus, they hate His people. And so we continue to be hated by the world. We continue to be mocked by the world. And yet, even though we are hated, and even though as Christians we might be mocked, we're given this assurance in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that Christ, through death, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That describes every one of us who has repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and the victory that Christ has won for us so that we no longer need to fear death. We don't need to fear anything if we fear God rightly. Because this victory is given to God's people, we have every reason to be content in life We have every reason to rejoice in every situation. We don't need to keep ourselves sheltered at home and comfortable. You can imagine that the Israelites, upon David killing Goliath, that they were just overwhelmed with a deep, deep sense of joy and thankfulness upon being freed from fear, freed from slavery. You can imagine that the sounds of joyfulness and thanksgiving of men who had been rescued and redeemed from captivity would have echoed across the battlefield as they gave chase to the Philistines. It's a picture of the joy and the thankfulness that men and women have today when God pours out His grace on a person in order that they might be convicted of their sin only to have the pain and the fear of their conviction relieved by the sweet sight of Christ bearing their punishment for them, dying for them so that they might live in Him. Do you know the joy, the thankfulness that I'm talking about here? Friends, my greatest desire in ministry is that every one of you would know that joy that you would know the joy and the thankfulness that comes from knowing that Jesus Christ both lived for us and died to set us free from the penalty and the power of sin. We haven't been set free for the sake of freedom alone. Instead, we have been freed to serve and to glorify God among the nations that they may believe. And in order to serve to strengthen God's people in their faith as well. Remember this, Christian obedience, and we shouldn't be intimidated by that word, Christian obedience isn't motivated by the idea that we have to do this and we have to do that to make sure that we stay within the covenant. No, that's a false teaching of federal vision. We don't, we're not motivated by the idea that we have to do this and we have to do that in order to earn our salvation. No, our lives, our obedience is motivated rather 
by thankfulness. By thankfulness. Thankfulness that God has provided His anointed King to be victorious over our greatest enemies, sin and death. And so with hearts filled with thanksgiving, let us therefore walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. Not in order to be saved. Not in order to stay saved. But because we are saved. David desired that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Do you know that desire? Can you relate to that desire? If you do, and I pray that you do, then may our lives be devoted to living in such a way that the world may know that the Christian faith is not just some outdated idea, the cross is not just some outdated relic, but that the Lord of hosts who died for our sins and rose victorious over death and sin from the grave is still ever-present in His church, in our homes, and in our lives. May the nations see this and know that there is a God. May the nations see this and cease from their rejection and their defiance of the Lord Jesus. May all of God's people trust in the Lord and may God be glorified in our lives because that is the greatest thing worth living for. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word has a way of illustrating for us our weaknesses, our deficiencies, our needs. But it also has a way of showing us that You are faithful and that You are sufficient. And so we pray, O Lord, first of all, that You would teach us to put our trust not in the flesh, not in anything less than You, but we also pray, O oh Lord, that our lives would be a testimony of the power of Your grace to change us. To take us from people who once trusted in the flesh and people who once trusted in worldly ways and devices to people who trust in You and desire only to be faithful to You. O oh Lord, we pray that You would grow us in our faith we pray that You would grow us in our faithfulness, not for our sake, but for Your glory. That Your glory may be witnessed before those around us on a daily basis. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would use us for Your glory. That You would equip us with whatever is necessary to glorify You in our context, in the context of our lives. We pray, O oh God, for opportunities to share the gospel. And we pray for our unbelieving friends and neighbors and family members. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would use us to give the good news to them. That trusting in the lower things of this world leads to death. But that trusting in Christ means that death has lost its sting. We pray these things in the name of Him who shed His blood for the remission of our sins. Our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, Your only Son.
Amen.